0: Hey, y'all, this is Mike Joseph, and you are listening to Detoxicity, a podcast about non toxic masculinity. I want to thank you in advance for listening, and also remind you to push that subscribe button so you can have upcoming episodes delivered right to you. Also, feel free to leave feedback by rating and commenting. Finally, get in touch with me either by following me on socials, tis Mike Joseph on Twitter, and Detox Pod Guy on IG, or by emailing me, detoxpod at gmail.com, for all y'all old school people. I love feedback. Don't hesitate to reach out with ideas for the show or suggestions for guests or if you yourself would like to be on the show. Thanks again for supporting this. It is greatly appreciated. Jermaine Charles is a data and tech professional based in Brooklyn, New York. Over his career, Jermaine has also worked in radio and film production, leading to a very diverse professional experience that aligns with his unique personal experiences. In this episode, Jermaine and I talk about all sorts of things from the fallacy of the nuclear family to his complicated relationships with both parents. You'll also hear about Jermaine's nomadic existence which has taken him across the country and back a time or two, and he and I revisit a topic that seems to rear its head in just about every episode of detoxicity empathy. It is my pleasure to introduce you all to Jermaine Charles.
1: So, I'm Jermaine Charles, just a dude. <laughs> <laughs> More than just a dude. I, you know, I work in media and entertainment and have in various Corners of the industry over the decades, which I still have to get used to saying out loud now. Um, <laughs> I got started in the business, as they say, when I was 16, working for local radio. And from there, parlayed that into working with the local news station. So I realized at this point in my life, I've been doing it longer than I haven't.
0: <laughs> Understood. How did you get started at such a young age?
1: You know, it, when you're a kid, everybody asks you, What do you want to do when you grow up, kind of thing. And I was one of the generation of latchkey kids that was raised by the TV, essentially. And I don't, I guess around when I hit being a teenager, it was like, oh, like somebody actually makes this stuff. And like, that's a job you can have. And I was like, I want to be a, a movie director. And when people would ask me that question, I, what I was describe at that point, I didn't know it was actually what a producer does. Okay. So when I was in high school, you know, my soft, sophomore, junior year, just kind of talking to the, you know, high school administration and guidance counselors and whatnot. It just so happened that the the principal of my school wanted to connect me with the guy who ran the communications department at the local community college. And the thing about that program was they were actually getting ready to shut it down. And the reason they were getting ready to shut the communications program down was because they didn't have enough graduates. Not because they didn't have enough enrollees, but because everyone who went to the program ended up getting jobs and going to work before graduation. So they didn't have enough graduates to justify continuing the program. It was almost like the program was too successful for its own. So the guy who, you know, he set up kind of an informational meeting and I went over to the campus and talked with him one day and he was like, you know, I actually know the program director at the local radio station and, you know, music was a big thing for me too. So not only did I want to direct movies, I think you know you grew up in the neighborhoods I grew up in at some point everybody wants to be a rapper or producer
0: (laughs) familiar with that concept
1: (laughs) I'm the kind of guy that like reads liner notes so I would get albums and spend an hour just kind of reading what was sampled where and like then go dig in the crates my dad would be like oh that record yeah let me play that (laughs) original and I was fascinated with how they would chop it up and you know at one point in my life I thought maybe I might be like a tour manager or like I might manage other music people. So the guy from the community college, Robert Cunningham, connected me with the program director of the local radio station. And I ended up interning for the local radio station, WFXC in Columbus, Georgia. And from there, I ended up doing weekend morning drives. So it was, I would get to do an hour of like playing music And then they had a syndicated show that I would run. So it was basically just kind of operating the board and playing the national syndicated program. And then after that syndicated program, I would come back on and do another hour of me. As a teenager? Yeah. So because of that, like, I'm the lead in and the lead out. Like, my ratings were, like, not because of me, because I was doing anything spectacular, but because I was sandwiching this, like, nationally syndicated, like, Russ Parr. Mm -hmm. um, so like the block, my block had like these skyrocketing ratings, but it was also, you know, 6 to 10 a.m. Saturday morning, the shift that nobody wanted to get up and do. <laughs> so, sure, sure. And then Robert ended up becoming the operations manager for one of the local TV stations, WRBO. And then, you know, I he was like, you want a part-time job here? So I was in high school working two part-time jobs, one at the radio station, one at the TV station.
0: You were hustling. Wow. You had your eyes on a prize in high school when I feel like most people you get to like sophomore year or junior year in high school and you're just concerned with like hanging out and you know talking to girls like where did you get your your
1: drive your focus? I mean plenty of that happened too don't get me wrong. I mean I knew that's what I wanted to do and then you know because I was working at the radio station I got to hang out with all the DJs and whatnot you know and there was like the cachet that came with that you know I could walk around the halls of school and be like yeah, I'm like going to be backstage at this concert this weekend because the radio station is promoting it. And I'm, I'm kind of the man, and I get to wear that on my shoulder, which as a 15 year old is like, you know. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: I can That's only imagine. Thing.
1: So that it, there, it was kind of like this uh, positive feedback loop, right? So it'd be one thing. It's like, oh, I'm doing all this work, and like, it's a distraction from me being able to hang out and talk to girls and all the stuff that you mentioned, like. This actually helps me talk to more. <laughs> right. It improves your you game. <laughs> so here's a question that
0: once you mentioned to me that you work in film and TV as a producer, I've always wanted to ask, what exactly does a producer do?
1: So it depends. You know, there's a lot of different types of producer. So you have, you know, your executive producers, which are generally the guys who do the bankroll and Raise the money, or if they're not funded themselves, if they're not, you know, working for a studio or whatever, you have your line producers, which are the guys or women, the people who make the trains run. Essentially, you know, they hire all of the crew and make sure that the budget is on track, and you know, book down the locations. If they don't do it themselves, they know the locations manager that they work with, and then they, you know, connect with. Usually a director may want a specific DP, but on smaller films, you know, you may just basically staff the whole production. You have your associate producers, which is a bit of a nebulous term, could be everything (laughs) from, you know, such and such actor wants his girlfriend to get a credit. So she becomes an associate producer, or sometimes it's the person who found the script and, or the writer may want to produce for credit, you know. Associate producer credits can be handed out as collateral for a lot of other things. That's not to say that they don't do have specific roles. It just depends on the production. That title can be applied to a lot of different roles. So I tend to fall more in the line producer uh, or production manager space. It's been a while since I've done that on any film, on the film side anyway, you know, I've got a corporate day job now, essentially doing line producer stuff for a corporate entity. <laughs>
0: sure. So you mentioned that, so you're from Georgia originally?
1: Not originally. So I've okay. lived in a lot of different places. Uh, I was born in Ohio. My dad was in the military, but I didn't move around with him in the military a lot. So, okay. you know, like he and my mom weren't As long, I don't remember a time of them being together. Like there's one picture I have my possession of the three of us when I was a baby. And there's like a narrow window of time when that picture could have been taken. (laughs) So he was in the military. I uh, was born in Ohio. Lived with my mom until I was, well, I lived in Ohio until I was 15. And then I moved down to Georgia with my dad, which is where he was stationed at the time. So that's the only place I was with him in all of his various assignments throughout different places. He was in Germany at one point and was in Hawaii when I was in college and Alaska and a bunch of different places. Oh, wow. Well, I only lived with him in Georgia. And then from there, I went to college in Florida, Tallahassee at Florida State. After college, I went back to my hometown for a quick minute. And then ended up moving out to LA because, you know, when you're a film school kid. That's
0: that's where the <laughs> stuff is.
1: Yeah. And I was in LA for the majority of my adult life. So that's where I consider home. Okay. And then from LA I ended up in Denver for a little bit. And that's when I kind of got in the corporate side of things and started working in cable TV. And then I was at I was actually at Time Warner Cable. So when Time Warner Cable merged with Charter, you know. When mergers happen, people tend to scatter to the wind. And that's when I moved to New York because, you know, being in Denver, it's like, well, if I'm working in media and I'm not going to be with this company anymore, back in L.A. and New York are the places for me to go. That's right. And at that point, it was like, I've got a certain amount of money. I can go out to New York for a period of time, try to figure it out. And if it doesn't work, I've got my network in L.A. Like I could always fall back on that. And here I am four years later talking to you, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't, you feel like LA is home,
1: so what about LA specifically captured your heart? Because I have issues with LA. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not for everybody, that's for sure. You know, for me, diversity is really important, and you know, between LA and New York, they're probably two of the most diverse cities on the in the world. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to have access to, you can find it in LA or New York, so now that's, true of New York as well. I think for me, LA is a lot of where I came into my own, you know, like that's, yeah, I was in college living by myself, but like where I kind of really found myself as a person and like who I want to be individuated from family ties and who I'm supposed to be versus who I want to be. I think a lot of that happened for me in LA. So I just kind of feel that kinship to it. And That's not to say that I may not come to feel the same way about New York, Uh, you know, once I've lived here for a longer period of time. I think LA is definitely not for everybody. Like I said, there's a culture out there. I mean, I love the weather for sure. I miss. I left LA in 2012 when I went to Colorado and, you know, I've been, you know, before pandemic times, I would generally get back like once or twice a year. And the truth is, I describe it to people like if you dated somebody and then you split up and you're still friends. So it's like, I still know this person but I don't know them like I used to know them. Like sure. they their life has evolved away from what it was when they were with me. And LA has definitely changed. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, I remember when this block was completely different <laughs> in an ideal world, you know, I might have a bi-coastal life where I kind of go out there when the weather is bad and then come know or just spend time on each coast depending where business takes me. Yeah. Um I'm not operating it in in that (laughs) realm just yet, but who's to say? (laughs) It
0: it can happen in the future.
1: Indeed. You mentioned sort of the who who you who who you
0: were versus who you are, the whole finding yourself process. And was there a gap? in who you were supposed to be versus who you thought you were, like a size. Cause I think it's different for everybody and everybody has like the person that, you know, your, your parents and your school friends and all those people know versus like the person you really are. That gap can differentiate in size from person to person. How much of the self that you are now was in the germane that everybody thought you were? Or, or
1: vice versa? I mean, there's definitely threads. And I, I don't think that this is unique to me. Everybody, like you said, kind of goes through this process of individuation. I was always, for lack of a better term, a, an intellectual. You know, like, I was very studious when I was in school and academia. When I was holding down those two part-time jobs. I actually graduated top of my class kind of thing. Mm. So, I don't know. Like, my dad wanted me to be an engineer because you know, I did well in school, I could have been anything I wanted to be. And it was like, this is where you make the money kind of thing. And that's just not what I wanted for myself. Like, I was fascinated by media and the way it kind of shapes culture and influences society. Like, that's something that I realized really early on, particularly because I was raised by the TV, you know, like, a lot of my cultural awareness came from what I saw on TV. And, for better or for worse, right? So in 1996 was when I was in Georgia with my dad and he was stationed at um, Fort Benning. He was a drill sergeant and he would tell me stories in the late 90s of getting new recruits from, you know, the Deep South who he was the first Black person that they'd ever met or ever seen that wasn't on TV. Mm-hmm. Kind of, and now he's giving them orders, right? <laughs> so you can only imagine. Can <laughs> yeah. you only imagine. And you remember Back at that time, and even today, still, just representation is huge for me because there was limited b- representation of Black culture on TV back in the day. And it was like, yeah. you got Cosby as the positive, and then you've got a bunch of other stuff that falls in various realms. And it's like, there's ways to be positive without being the Huxtables, you know, like, never mind what we know about Bill Cosby now, but right. like, you know, there's ways of not having to be like, you know, the the gangster rapper from the West Coast, or you know, like Black nerd culture is a big thing now. Back then, there was very there, little representation of that. You there know? was there was Urkel. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And Just all the flavors of, you know, particularly being in New York. That's the that's something that's been eye opening for me. Are all of the different the diaspora of Blackness from outside of the US, right? So like within US culture, there's like African-American culture and all of the ways that that can permeate. But here in New York, I've been a lot more exposed to like Caribbean culture and like a lot of the African people who have neighborhoods set up here, where it's like, if you're just getting all of your experience of Black America from the TV, you're not gonna get any of that exposure or have familiarity with any of that. And it's very important to me to have some of that stuff represented accurately, you know, for both positive and negative things. Like, I'm not not one to preach and say, like, oh, we want to get rid of all these stereotypes and whatnot. It's like, well, if that's a part of it, yes, fine, show that. But let's balance it out with the other side, too. Right. It can't be the only part of it. Exactly. You know, and it's something that comes up. People talk about, like, when you look at the Oscar bait movies, and it's, always a civil rights struggle or a slave narrative or blah 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 and it's like I don't mind that story being told those stories are important to tell but also let's show the other side, right. side of it, you know and I think it's more I was I used to go to this forum in Colorado called second Tuesday race forum which was basically kind of like a discussion group salon of people just talking about racial issues and it was interesting to me because people were saying and non-Black people who wanted to ally and say, you know, how do we support? And we want to, you know, have more representation. And for me, it's less about you being all excited about, you know, Twelve Years a Slave coming out and you know the latest whatever that shows the Black struggle and saying, I, I really want to like take this in because it helps me understand. But then you turn around and get upset when John Boyega is a stormtrooper, right? That that says more about where you are as an ally than your like rallying cry of "Yeah, I'm all for supporting where it's support." But then you don't want to like allow blackness into these other spaces. We should be able to have that full experience and not just be exist within this narrative of we need to overcome, which we do. But also sometimes we just want to have black joy. You know, sometimes we just want to party. Sometimes we just want to like hang out and barbecue without getting the police call on us. Right, know?
0: yeah. You know, I, and I've had an issue for a long time with black people being viewed as a monolith, not and not just by white people, also by other black people. I love the fact that in the past 10 to 15 years, particularly, there has been this flourishment of "Quote unquote" alternative blackness. Right. Like you can be, you can be Little Wayne and be black. You can be Donald Glover and be black. Right. You can be, uh, oh, I'm forgetting from Pose. Oh, Billy uh, Porter. Right. You can be Billy Porter and be black. You can be Issa Rae and be black. And it's not just Black American. Like not every person from the Caribbean is Jamaican, right? Oh, you know, there's Black Africans. There's Black, or obviously Black Africans, Black British people. <laughs> You know, uh, there's Black Canadians, uh, you know, because Drake is running things right now. (laughs) Drake and the Weeknd are running things right now. And they're all very distinct cultures, too. Yes. Yes. Having been a, a child of the 80s and early 90s, where it was either you were Bill Cosby or you were, you know, a thug running around shooting everybody, just to, for me to know internally that there is a wider array of ways to express Blackness, and now for other people to finally be
1: catching that is, is a really good thing. Definitely. We definitely have to acknowledge that there's been a lot of progress made and to be truthful, you know, like, I feel like right now is a bit of a hot moment to be Black. Not that it's easy, (laughs) but also, you know, there's a lot of attention being played, paid to the Black experience in America. Right. And, you know, with, obviously that's not something that I, seen before within my lifetime and I think you know within the past few generations it's always been civil rights struggle civil rights struggle civil rights struggle now I feel like there is a curiosity around like oh like there is a a a, a fullness to the black experience you know like I look at something like Atlanta with Donald Glover which is like my favorite show on tv right now because it's like just so much nuance to like you can watch that show and like you either get it or you don't right Right. (laughs) you know and so many people are like oh i've never seen like like the barbershop episode was very funny to people who have been in black barbershops there's so much nuance and like yeah we've had that experience where you show up and it's like taking three hours to get in the chair that you thought was going to take 20 minutes yep right and it's taking a humorous look at that but for that to be represented and people who know that to relate to it right like an exec from a studio who's like well we need to you know show some blackness is not going to know that because they're sitting in a boardroom dictating what diversity means versus someone who's had that experience saying let me just come out here and be myself right not be oh today this type of hot single is selling so I gotta like do it in this cadence because that's what's going to help me pay my bills. It's like, nope, let me just come do my thing. Yeah. Who I am and trust me, there's people out there who can relate. Yeah. Individuality is celebrated to a level
0: that it never has been before.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, And I certainly appreciate the hell out of that because, you know, as someone of my age, to finally get to a point where I see people in media that represent my experience is a wonderful thing.
1: Like I said, when I say diversity is important to me, like I always wanna be in, if I can, be in mixed crowds, you know? Now, don't get me wrong, there's times where I just wanna be around my people, right? So there is that. But in terms of like all day, every day, I try to get a little flavor of everything, you know? When I first moved to New York, I was in Queens, which is statistically like the most diverse county mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, And like, you feel that. When I was in LA, you know, there's all kinds of clubs in LA and whatnot. And me knowing all the DJs went to a lot of different ones. The ones I love best were like the open format DJs who would play a little bit of everything and attract like crowds that were super diverse there's this party that's pretty well known now called the do-over out in LA it started in LA and now they do it in cities around the world but like you would go in there and it would be I don't know maybe 40 percent black and then like five percent Filipino and you'd have white people there and you would have a lot of Latino crowd and like it was just like such a mix of all kinds of people coming to listen to this music and like, it tended to be hip hop driven. But the lovely thing about hip hop is that it draws influence from all these other genres, right? Right. So like DJs could really kind of play around with it. And that was like, like I was there every week. Like, I don't, I didn't consider myself a club kid but at the end of the day, I ended up being a club kid. (laughs) You just didn't be in this environment. You you had to find the right club. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And for me, that was, you know, like just that exposure to just a plethora of everything. And again, me being the guy that would like open up the liner notes, that's that's one of my favorite things. And you know, I'm I'm the kind of person that just loves watching, like turntablism. Like that's a big thing for me. Scratch DJ, scratching DJ stuff isn't as big as it once was. Right. But I mean, that's my jam, man. I I like. Watch somebody do body tricks all day and just like go down rabbit holes of YouTube videos.
0: (laughs) I've had the opportunity to see all of these live shows by, you know, people who study music, like Questlove and Ninth Wonder, Jazzy Jeff, and all of these other cats who, even without the tricks, and Quest, like Questlove in particular, really doesn't do a ton of scratching or or, or anything like that. But it's just deep, deep knowledge is deep musical knowledge and he blends random like you you don't know what's going to come next because his 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 database his internal database is so vast
1: well i mean i used to run with like the the guys who put on the do-over were like really part of like the stone's throw crew okay like i used to have drinks with mad lib just hanging out and talk records and aloe black you know I I was the one that told him that Jimi Hendrix used to play with the Isley brothers. Like, just being able to have, like, that's music dope. discussions with, like, if you know who Madlib is and who Aloe Black is, and, like, they all knew Dilla back in the day. Like, being able to have that caliber of, like, music discussion. When I say L.A. made me who I am, like, that's what I'm talking about.
0: Respect. <laughs> so, kind of going back to the, the evolution of Jermaine, when did you feel like you were when was the point when you feel like you
1: became like your true self? Like what was the turning point? Okay. I guess we're going to go here. If you, if you want. No, no, no. I, yeah. it's, it's, it's just the tone of the conversation may shift. Okay. So I have, you know, I've been fairly estranged from my mother's side of the family. Like I haven't talked to my mom in a decade at this point, a little over a decade at this point. And that relationship was always like I moved out when I was 12 so when I was 12 years old I left my mom's place and I went to live with my grandmother for a year and then after that I went to live with like family friends this was voluntary yeah yeah Uh, and to her credit she let me go because she knew I wasn't happy you know there was some conflict with my stepdad but I'm not going to like place that all on him. It was that combined with a lot of other things. And even when I moved out, it still, there was still kind of this like this feeling of obligation to like make her happy. And a lot of times it felt like, how can I say this? I was always aware of the fact that I was not a planned pregnancy, right? (laughs) My mother never said it explicitly, but there was just general awareness that she felt her life would have been easier if it weren't for me.
0: Okay. Right.
1: And and not that I was a difficult child. I was actually quite, uh, you know, like I was it last It sounds like you were, were the- Sister, yeah. and like getting straight A's and just doing everything right. But it's just like, when you're a 19 year old that has a kid, life's hard, <laughs> right? So it took a long time it, it actually, when I turned 19, I ha- I remember having this very vivid moment where it was like, you know, if I had a kid right now, not only would I make a lot of mistakes as well, I'd probably make some of the exact same mistakes she made because I can't help it. Like it's the resources I have, this is what I have to do, mm-hmm. right? So that allowed me to have a lot of forgiveness for her. And I think that our relationship changed at that point, but then shit kept happening <laughs> right and it's like we're both adults now come on what the fuck right yeah. so at one point I was just like I I gave an ultimatum and it was like you know if we're gonna have a relationship you need to interact with me and engage with me as an adult or you're not gonna engage with me or interact with me and she didn't take to that well and overstepped some boundaries and you know I I you know in a fit of of I don't know if I'd say it was rage but you know she's pulling the you know I'll always be your mom and no matter what happens you know blah 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 and I was like yeah you know you'll always be my biological mother but after today you can just act like I died I'm dead to you and that was the last thing I said to her
0: wow yeah
1: so I go there because while that still, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously.
0: There very much is. And Jermaine, I, I, I relate to that story. There are lots of similarities between your story and my story in that regard, and I'll leave it at that for now.
1: After that happened, I my life got a lot easier. I got a lot happier, and I was able to just kind of live it on my terms. As much as there is to unpack there, that is the thing that's reassured me that it was the right move to make. So
0: it's so difficult because we are, and I shouldn't say we, a lot of us are trained just to believe that family is the biological family, right? It's kind of the, the, the the ultimate source of emotional sustenance. And, you know, the reality is that we're random people, they're random people. The The sharing of genetic material does not necessarily mean that
1: we're gonna vibe the same way. You, you often hear you know, "blood's thicker than water," and I've never heard someone use that phrase when they weren't trying to hold something over you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. I, I have a lot of other friends, you know, my chosen family, and they. It, you have your biological family, and your logical family. Like wow, who, I haven't heard they, that before where <laughs> you like have these bonds with there was an article in the atlantic last february like right before the pandemic hit the name of the article was the nuclear family was a mistake and it talks about how in the 50s and 60s well previous there was like extended families and you might have generational households and sure like spent a lot of more time in these larger units i mean if you go back into like prehistory, we were tribal, you know, and kind of that was, some of that was biological, but also like your tribe was just extended based on whatever bonds made sense culturally. And sometime in the 50s and 60s, you know, because of capitalism and patriarchy surprise, there was this steering towards these closed off like pairings of, you know, mother, father, 2.5 kids, and the dog. And that cut us off from all of the the support network that you have from an extended family. Or, you know, now everybody has to buy their own lawnmower because they've got their own lawn. And it's just like capitalism drives this. We can get people to consume more if we break them off in these little units. And for a while, it made sense based on, like, the economics of that time period for, you know, let's be honest, straight white men you can have a single income and support a nuclear family unit. Right. And then you would have, you know, because of patriarchy, the the domestic part of that was taken care of by the wife or, you know. Right. But that's not our world anymore. Like, two-income households are barely holding together a lot of times. And gender roles never really needed to be the way they were and make even less sense now. So why are we still trying to break ourselves off and pair into these like little individuated units? And there's, you know, it's a long article, which I'm not going to try to recap here, but it like gets into all the nuances of why this doesn't really work for us anymore. And it's interesting, like that's been exacerbated by the pandemic, right? We're all living in isolation now, or those of us who are doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Or, you know breaking off into pods, and that works too, but a lot of that, the support networks that we might've had if we were approaching this differently just aren't there. And I'd like to think that maybe that's evolving a little bit, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I know I'm living my life in a way that's, you know, markedly different from the status quo, so, yeah. I wanna say that it is.
0: I, the, the older I get, the less the idea of the typical patriarchal household makes sense to me. And it's not even that I don't, that it doesn't make sense for me, because it doesn't make sense for me. But also, like, it doesn't make sense. Because I, I did not grow up in a in a typical mom, dad, two children, dog situation. And maybe that's part of it, too. Like, it was always family but it was very much communal in a way as well and I know that for me personally having you know one partner and one kid and living that sort of honeymooners or or, closed off life yeah Yeah. closed
1: off sort of life just doesn't it doesn't make sense well and that's before you even get into the heteronormativity of it all right we talk about the gender roles or child rearing and like particularly in the pandemic, you it's noticeable. Like the New York Times just had that article about motherhood in a pandemic where you're working right. from home, but then the women are expected to do all of the childcare. And it's like, who thought of that bullshit? I don't have any kids myself, so I don't want to dive too deep into things I can't speak upon from experience. But I think it was Mike Birbiglia talked about like the experience of becoming a father and watching his child... Bond with the mother more, just because of like, you know, she breastfed, and like, when does when do I get my chance to bond with the child, right? And I think I forget the whole story, but I think there was a period where the kid wasn't able to breastfeed, so like logistically, he was spending just as much time doing that as she was, and then like he noticed it switched when when you know they went back into the breastfeeding and it's like again in this nuclear family setup the mom stays at home with the kids the dad goes off to work and comes back at home right before the kids go to bed Mm -hmm. like generations of our culture have never had like really solid male parental figures not because of lack of trying, but just because of the way we set it up, right? And that's before you get into somebody's being an asshole and just, <laughs> you know, like that happens too. And how much different could our culture look if we were to put it into a more equitable scenario where, you know, those bonds are are much closer and then like maybe the mainstream versions of masculinity might not be so toxic or or maybe toxic in a different way. Who knows? Like, we're doing a thought experiment here, but what we got going on, ain't really working. So not
0: at all, (laughs) not at all. And it's interesting that you, you know, your environment wasn't exactly the, the condition kind of, you know, mom, dad thing either. So, you know, you have experience in something that that is not quote unquote the norm which I think might make you more amenable to, to considering alternative means of kind of living your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know. I am curious, because you haven't spoken much about your dad, his being in the military, like, kind of enforced certain, like, a certain rigidity or a certain
1: order. So, I mean, I moved in with him when I was 15. And then, you know, I graduated high school and went to college. So I lived with him for two and a half years-ish. And I- I tell people my dad can be the coolest dude in the world when he wants to be and the biggest asshole in the world. When he <laughs> depends on how he's feeling that day. And, you know, I, I move in with him when I'm 15 and he's in the military. Like my, I had a stepsister, so he got married and she actually passed away. My, my oh, stepsister passed away. But his only experience with like young men, and it was actually another the program director at the radio station that I was working with, like I was in my in my head one day and he was kind of talking me through some stuff. And he was like, you realize your dad's only experience with young men is other troops. So of course, when he's trying to relate to you, that's what he knows. And it's not like he didn't have me running drills around the house or whatnot. But I remember in the summers when I was off of school on summer vacation, there were days he would like wake me up and be like, hey, get up. I need you to go and fix this. And I'd be like, well, it's not broken. Like, well, now it is. I need to give you something to do. do. And I, you know, I kind of wrap my head around like this is this whole discipline thing, which I get where that comes from. Doesn't mean I liked it. Doesn't mean I necessarily agree with it in that way. Like, yes, discipline, a certain amount of discipline is good, but there's also like going too hard. (laughs) Yeah. Got to let a kid be a kid. So, you know, there was some conflict there. My relationship with him is better than it is with my mother. It's not, you know, I think it's, it's more like I, 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 I'll put it this way. I'll pick up the phone sometimes when he calls. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that, you know, so a lot of that was also me kind of realizing I just wanted to, Be my own person. And, you know, as an adult, he has come out and said at times, like, you've always done your own thing. And a lot of the major decisions I've made that made me who I am today, my dad was in direct opposition to, like, he didn't want me to go to the college that I went to or major in the major that I majored in, or when I decided to move out west, he didn't want me to do that. All these major decisions that I feel like are key parts of what made me who I am, like he opposed like tooth and nail. And I just did it anyway. And at one point he was like, Yeah, you did what you wanted to do and you made it work without me, but explicit without my explicit support. Like I said, I am not going to support you in this. If you do this, you're on your own. And you went and did it. I gotta respect that, which is about as close to (laughs) him saying, I'm sorry, or, you know, admitting that he's been wrong about certain things that I'm probably going to get. So I take it. (laughs) How did you get such a strong sense of self? I don't know that I had a choice. I mean, there's been a lot of periods in my life where it's like, I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. So I just go and I stumble around and try to figure it out.
0: Is there not like a second guess, third guess? fourth guess kind of
1: overanalyzing part. I mean, I don't always get it right, obviously. Right. (laughs) My life has had its fair share of struggles. I mean, it's always scary, but it's like, how much scarier can it be than the bullshit I'm dealing with in the moment? You know, like one of the stories I do remember my mom telling from when I was a baby, actually, I went and bought this because it reminds me of it there used to be this uh, little kid's toy called the shape-o ball, which is essentially like you get the little shapes and you have to put it in the ball. So it's like a circle and a square.
0: I I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: So (laughs) my mom tells this story about how like when I was a baby I would be sitting around playing with my toy and like another adult or whoever was watching me would try to come over and like help me and play with it. And I would get pissed off, (laughs) like no. I want to do it myself. I want to figure it out. I got this. So that's just always been there. And I don't know if that's something from a past life that I carried over or what, but I've always been like, I need to figure out how to do it my way. As I've gotten older, I've had to acclimate myself to not reinventing the wheel when there's like already a path, but also like, yeah, this is a path. And, you know, if I'm, Say, like, you know, I'm working in the corporate world now. Somebody's like, oh, well, like, if you want to be this, then this is the steps you want to do. And it's like, well, I want to get over there, but I don't want to be that. So I'll go in this direction. But at some point, I want to be like, nah, not that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yep. I got to figure out this new thing, because what I want is not what you got. I want this other thing that's my own, you know? So I don't know where that comes from, honestly. But you rock with it. I value people
0: who are independent and are confident in their independence without being like my way or the highway type people. I think there's a way to express ways of life and thoughts that are very much your own without beating people upside the head with it. So I I admire the fact that you've kind of gone through life to the beat of your own drummer and, you know, kind of made it through in, in, in your way, and you're not an asshole.
1: <laughs> like I said, I try to be very open-minded to, and part of this is like just having moved around so much and being exposed to so many different, you know, I, I haven't lived outside of the U.S., but within the U.S., there's so many different cultures, right? You know, Ohio and the Midwest is very different from when I moved down to Georgia. There was a bit of a culture shock there, and then I, I go And it's like, LA is its own thing, right, which is completely different from New York. So like, having been exposed to so many different ways of life just kind of leaves me open. I know I don't have all the answers. And even if I have all the answers for me, doesn't mean that my blueprint is what works for somebody else. So I try to keep an open mind to different perspectives and By having exposure to that, it helps me as, you know, the intellectual in me is like, I become a better thinker when I think about this from different angles than just what I think is right. You know, when I was, I guess this was in 2013 or so, like right when I first moved to Denver for a little while, I was working with Microsoft on their mapping project. So I got to drive Microsoft's version of the Google car. Okay different parts of the country. So we call it the Bing Mobile. That wasn't the official name. So it was like, you know, we had the big camera and I would just drive around the city and we would learn a city better than the people who live there. Because you think about when you live someplace, like here's my house, here's my job, this is my commute. That's what I know. And if I go someplace, I'm going to that place and coming back. Mm. So we would get in the car an hour after sunrise and literally drive up and down every street because we're trying to get it for the map, every alley, and then an hour before sunset, you know, like literally learning these streets. And I felt like like a cultural anthropologist because I got to just so much. It'd be like one day I'd be in Oakland, stopped at a red light in the hood and like literally see somebody lighting up a pipe while I'm stopped at this red light. And then the next day, I'd be in some gated community where there's literal gargoyles in someone's front lawn and just recognizing certain patterns about, like, how different neighborhoods are set up. Like, you recognize projects when you see projects.
0: Yeah.
1: communities, you recognize when you see that. But there's all these other things in between that people don't necessarily recognize the patterns of. But I picked that up because I was just seeing it all the time and, like, seeing the contrast and, like, recognizing how to tell what kind of neighborhood I was just from like crossing the road kind of thing. And like, oh, something's changed here. I think by being humans, you kind of sense it, but like being confronted with it to a point where you can start actually picking apart what it is that you intuitively know, that was really fascinating for me. And it just kind of gave me what I feel is like a really broad understanding. Again, a kid raised by the TV and having that be extreme, you know, the sole major impact on how I interpreted the world and then actually being in the world and learning it from the other side. Not a lot of people have that experience. And I think that is like a really unique perspective on how I approach everything because I've had that experience.
0: Do you think that the concept of people not having the opportunities to be in the world the way that you have do you think that that is like kind of a deliberate construct
1: or something that is just random? I mean, I'm not like a super conspiracy theorist or anything, <laughs> but I mean, it depends on what you mean by by deliberate. I, I do think that it's by design that there are walls between people.
0: Yeah, I just I asked that because one thing that frustrates me is that people so often stay in their own siloed existences and don't get the chance to develop empathy because they don't get to experience cultures not like them or people not like them or neighborhoods not like them or so on. Right. And one thing that's popped into my head, especially in the last five or six years, is just like, is this how do we get more people to kind of look outside their own conditioned value system and their own people, for lack of a better term, and actually get the chance to develop empathy by experiencing other people and other ways of living. Because I think all that that ultimately makes you a better person, certainly a more empathetic person, but arguably
1: a better person as well. I mean, you know, media plays a part in that, which is why I choose to be in the space that I'm in. And, you know, you get a lot of people who think of it as, oh, it's entertainment, it's frivolous, but it's like, sure, you can approach it that way. I approach it from a completely different angle where it's like, no, this is important because it is how people perceive the world. It is Mm -hmm. how people form their beliefs and opinions and perceptions of the world that they may not be able to go out and touch every day, right? I think people don't realize how many walls there are. And some of it is I'll say by design, but also it's not like there's some mustache twirling villain that's like, aha, we have to like, yeah, I, I think <laughs> about it, by circumstance and resources and it's like just the, the path of least resistance. Like it's easier to p- keep people in their bucket than to like try to get them to explore. And the Internet helps with that, too. You think about when we were growing up, if you were the black kid who was into punk rock. the hood you were the weirdo Mm -hmm. and then the internet comes along and you realize like oh there's a bunch of us and oh afropunk is a thing now like that's a whole thing now that if those people haven't been able to find each other before like they would have been the only they
0: would have been the only weirdo in each of their individual neighborhoods
1: right exactly i i also remember When I was in high school, I'll say, (laughs) Um, reading an article about how the last county in the U.S. had finally gotten hardline telephones. This is like the late 90s. Wow. And you think about like, when was the telephone invented? Like the early 20s. And it took that long for us to build the infrastructure so everybody had access It used to be, oh, I got to run into town because I need to use the phone, like someone who lives in a rural area on a farm. Right. And what people don't realize, like, that still exists today. There are parts of the U.S. and whole communities that don't have, like, reliable internet access, dial-up, yet alone broadband, right? So those of us who live in urban cities and and major metropolitan areas tend to take some of this for granted. And, oh, I can just type it into Google and get access to this. Or if I want to find a community online, I can find other people who are into like this weird niche thing that I'm into and you will likely find that. But the young queer kid who's in conservative Alabama in a rural area doesn't realize there's all this support out here. He's out there like going through conversion therapy because his parents took him to the pastor and was like fix my child. That's still happening today. Right. right? And I think the only thing that that gets through that is the exposure. I was just listening to some political pundit the other day talk about, I don't think we want to get rid of certain ways of life, but me being the progressive that I am is kind of live and let live. But what do we do about people whose way of life who, two groups whose ways of life threaten each other, right? Mm. And and not from any sort of like malice or animosity or or aggression, but just, you know, think about like the Amish, right? Who choose to live this kind of existence without technology or advanced technology, I should say. And that's a choice, fine. But just by being surrounded by all of this other stuff, their way of life is quote unquote threatened. Threatened. So how do we make space for someone to maintain the way of life they want to maintain, without these outside threats, and I think that it takes a while and some trial and error to get there. That's before you get to how does someone that's born into that who doesn't want to stay in that have the option to say, "Cool, you guys stay here and do this. I'm going to be do something." Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I think it's it's you know as culture and civilization evolves we're gonna have to try to figure that out one way or another and we're probably gonna mess it up along the way and there's probably gonna be some wars and <laughs> miss Because we're human and that's the way humans work right but ultimately i, I like to think that the, the long arc of justice will eventually get to a place where we can all kind of coexist in our in our realms as we choose
0: it's it's slow and it's painful
1: yeah but
0: you know 2021 is a lot different than 1996. Indeed. <laughs> and I think it's I think it's mostly positive.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of the the turbulence that we're witnessing right now is just sort of like it ebbs and flows like we have to go through this in order to get to the other side, mm-hmm. right? So like people are just now getting exposure to a lot of these things. So there's like this balkanization where people are kind of like oh no, I'm used to this and all this other stuff is threatening now. And that can be along religious lines or racial lines or sexuality lines or gender normative lines or whatever. And people are like, this is not what I'm used to. I don't know how it works. It scares me, right? And that's before you even get into the psychology, the Jungian psychology of me projecting. I actually really want that and because I don't have it, I'm going to try to destroy it. Because if I can't have it, no one else should either. It, like, there's a whole rabbit hole to go down with that. Yeah. How people project, and that is also fascinating to me. Like,
0: it is super fascinating. I actually just had a conversation with my with my friends on the Life on the Swing Set podcast about about that exact same thing on on Friday night, and yeah. it, it's crazy how people. You know, you always liken. I liken it to. All of the Republican politicians, the conservative uh Republican politicians who try to pass anti-queer legislation and then get caught in a men's room with the legs spread trying to solicit a blowjob or something like that. Right. It's super, super vehement about going after a certain thing, ultimately want to be that thing.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know, and I don't understand the psychology behind that at all.
1: <laughs> like I don't get it. But a friend of mine way back in the day, he was sort of like a pro-black activist. He had a quote, some, and I'm not going to remember it verbatim, but it was something to the effect of like, they they hate the way we dance, not because of anything inherently wrong with our dance, but because they can't do it. And it was, it was just like such a succinct way of expressing that. I love that, you know, I love that.
0: I got to thank Jermaine for taking a time out to be on the show and get interviewed. I really appreciate his perspective and his thoughts, uh, whether we agree or don't agree on them. Uh, he provided a lot of food for thought on this episode. Uh, Jermaine is fairly absent from social media. If you want to find him, go on LinkedIn, look for Jermaine Charles. Check out the photo in the social media um, stuff that I do for the show with his picture. Match it up, and there will be. So uh, you can find them on LinkedIn. I feel like that might be the first time I've directed someone to a LinkedIn page in a year of doing this show. But I also respect the uh, staying off social media because social media can be a grind sometimes. So uh, once again, thanks, Jermaine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Detoxicity. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you push that subscribe button and follow on socials. Once again, I am DetoxPodGuy on Instagram, and I am TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. Please feel free to rate and comment, and also reach out if you know anyone that would like to be on the show, or if you know anyone who would like to uh, listen to the show, or who would enjoy listening to the show, or who would get something out of the message that we're sending in these episodes. Uh, I wanna thank Calvin Williams for providing the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each of these podcasts. I wanna thank Jacob Block for providing the artwork that you see when you're listening to this episode on platforms. I wanna thank Jeff Giles for the inspiration behind the creation of this podcast to begin with, along with Andrew Grossman, uh, who's been a previous guest on this show and also provided sort of a seed for this podcast to take place. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this podcast. I want to thank you for listening, and please take care of yourselves. And I would say take care of yourselves and each other, but I would be stealing from Jerry Springer if I did that. But you get the idea. See you next week.